Mark Cuban is an entrepreneur, television personality, and investor. He is the owner of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks, co-owner of 2929 Entertainment, and one of the main shark investors on ABC's Shark Tank. Today, he'll discuss the kind of leadership he thinks we need, both in government and business, to get us through this national and international crisis. Let's listen in. We want to kick this off and uh, pleased to introduce our host. I, I think he needs no introduction. I think you, many of you have gotten the bio. People know of him, but I guess why I'm personally, I don't usually do uh, introduce our host, but I, I do it because about two years ago, I somehow connected with him and met him when he came to Washington. And I guess I was just impressed with the fact that he was serious. He came to Washington. He, he had some ideas he wanted to kick around on healthcare. And uh, he wanted to take it to the next step and, and uh, actually uh, speak to some policy folks and test out his thoughts. And I, I was struck by that. Uh, there was a sincerity, uh, you know, and a, a willingness to, to engage uh, with, with uh, some of the serious issues facing this country. So I was very, very impressed. And without further ado, I just would love to introduce Mark Cuban to give uh, eight to 10 minutes on his thoughts or insights. And then, as we always do, open it up for... Uh, Q&A. And Liz, you'll handle the chat room and people can notify you. Uh, and just hopefully they'll introduce themselves and say where they're from. Thanks so much. Thank you, Nancy. I appreciate your persistence and keeping in touch with me and keeping you up, keeping me updated with what No Labels is doing. I obviously really um, appreciate all the efforts from the organization. Um, and I guess, you know, the place to start, you obviously were in a unique time, but I think it all starts with leadership. We, we find ourselves in a set of circumstances where we have to make choices about our lives and we're looking for somebody to trust with our life and we don't know who to trust. And that creates a whole set of cascading problems. Normally in business, more so than politics, we, you know, we all understand our own companies. We all understand our industries and we understand that there's a, a specific context that we all have to, to deal with. It may be competitive, it may be industry, it may be um, government, it, you know, legislative. It, it, there's so many different aspects, but typically that context stays relatively calm, if you will. It's consistent and the variances are, are relatively small, all things considered, which allows us to run our business, allows us to deal with our employees, allows us to operate with some level of confidence that what we've done to get us to this position will continue to allow us to move forward and be successful. That's not what we find ourselves in right now. You know, right now we find ourselves with two pandemics, viral type and a, and a social pandemic, and both have basically destroyed the context that we're used to dealing with as business people and um, pushing forward our Agenda may not be the right word, but you know whatever those items are for success that we're, we look to to work with, and I think that is really what's created so much uncertainty is a given, but it's just created so much agita, you know that that intensity that has led in a big part to the social pandemic that we've seen over the past few nights. But really, I, I'm probably more suited to deal with the business side of it. And that's what I'll talk about for a few more minutes and then open up for questions. You know, when you find yourself in, in this set of circumstances, um, the first thing we try to do is, is look for certainty. And as I mentioned earlier, there, there is none, particularly on the, the political side. 
And so we end up getting to the point of what do we do as entrepreneurs? What do we do as CEOs? What role should we take as leaders? Because, you know, to, to get to where each of you are, there's leadership roles you've taken within an industry. But typically, you know, we just run our businesses. We don't look to take those leadership roles nationally. And I think that's the big decision. And that's the big question all of us need to address right now. What role do we take? What role as leaders do we take? Because as I mentioned right off, there's nobody we can trust with our lives. And yet we do that every single day. We look for that every single day. And as we look at media or look online, wherever it may be, you know, we're starting to see ever evolving things. You know, we went from, okay, stay in hop, stay at home. And here in Texas and in particularly some red states, it's like everybody's going out and partying and getting together as if nothing has happened. And so we're still waiting then to see, okay, What's the consequences of all this new information coming our way? And so as leaders, we have to digest that and we have to start taking steps about what to do next. Now, I can tell you myself, I've tried to be very transparent about this uncertainty. I've tried to be very honest about this uncertainty. But most importantly, I've tried to communicate and listen to all of my stakeholders because I think once I recognize that everybody at one level or another is afraid and at some levels terrified that it was became easier to just say, you know what, I need to talk to as many people as I can. Having Zoom sessions like this with employees that one day may be, you know, discussing the, the medical side of things and what we're seeing and what we're hearing and bringing in somebody able to discuss that. The other side may be, you know, what we did two days ago after the protests and riots hit, having African-American men that are in our companies, particularly um, on the basketball side of the Dallas Mavericks, talk to the organization and let them share their experiences and, and their personal thoughts so that um, the people around them could have a better understanding of what was going on from their perspective. Because as a leader, if we can't digest this and consolidate it and then communicate it, we're not actually leading. And that leads to even greater uncertainties and greater stress for the people who work for us and all of our stakeholders, which makes it harder for us to get the results as an organization that we're trying to get. And so I guess the point that I'll leave you with and open it up to questions is when there's nobody you can trust with your life, we all have to be leaders. And being a leader isn't just about doing the basics and just doing what you've always done. It means going out of our comfort zones and having conversations and having and putting groups together that we may not have put together before and recognizing and being candid and authentic and honest that even as a leader, it's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to be afraid because we truly are living in uncertain times. And that by doing that, that also gives us the credibility to go beyond our organizations. Because I think what I found is that the people who work for me, once they felt confident that I had their best interest and I was being honest and transparent and not spinning, then they wanted me to extend into other areas so that our customers could see you know, where we stood. Um, our customers could see how we're communicating. And then that allowed them to extend their ability to communicate as well. So, you know, in uncertain times, that's when leadership is called for more, particularly when at a federal level or even state levels, we don't really have all that much leadership. So I'm encouraging each and every one of you 
to become leaders beyond just your organizations and going out into community and really trying to stand up there where you can. So with that, I'll open it up with, for um, questions. Right. I mean, Andrew Tish, one of our co-founders, Andrew. Uh, thanks. Uh, so, so Mark, very few times in uh, uh, one's life does one get to look forward and say, I'm, I'm about to see major change take place in our society. Uh, and I think this is one of them. It started with the pandemic and is now moving forward into uh, social change. Uh, what does this look like at the end? When, when we come at the far end of this, what, what major social, social changes do you see happening? What I'm going to say is uncomfortable, but I'll tell you exactly what I feel. It depends on white people. You know, too often we ask the black communities to change, but it's really not the black or minority communities. And again, I talked about learning from um, some, some folks at the Mavs, and I'll tell you what they told me. You know, one was on the screen crying, telling um, one gentleman was on the screen crying, telling me about the conversation he had just had with his son about what he should do if he got pulled over by the police. You know, he's going into detail. You know, don't pull over where it's dark. If someone else is in the car with a phone, have them start taping, videoing everything that's going on. And it occurred to me, that's not a conversation I've ever had to have or will ever have to have with my, my, my son, you know? And then, then he went on to say that he wore his Mavericks gear when he went out because without it, he can tell that people immediately do a threat assessment on him because he's, you know, he's taller African-American male. And I realized, you know, they were, and he said, you know, people identify me first as a black man and then they go down the list. And when I have my Mavs jersey on or shirt on, that kind of soothes it and softens that, that view because it makes me look safe. And it made me realize never in my entire life have I, has anybody ever looked at me and said, oh, there goes a white man. You know, when there's a group of my friends together and all of a sudden, you know, a white individual walks up, we all think to ourselves, oh, do we know them? You know, or did I know this person from somebody? Do they want a beer? But in that, that same group of an African-American male walks up, it's like, okay, who do you know here? And you start to go through these things and, you know, really made me realize that this, this wasn't an African-American problem. It's a white problem. And so where do we see, how do we get, or what do we see on the other side of this? You know, I see mostly white faces. It really depends on, on what we do. And it really hit me hard. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I thought I was woke, you know, that I was, caring that I really believed in racial equality. And, you know, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to realize that my people I know, my friends, not even peer, peers, family, you know, that when, when I see that, that threat assessment or when I see them react differently because of someone's color, that I need to say something. And so to answer your question, if the white community, and, and it even sounds hard and difficult to even say white community, right? But if the white community takes steps to educate ourselves and catch ourselves, then we can have a positive, you know, other side. If not, I mean, look, I went through a lot of problems with the Mavs a couple of years ago. I had a CEO that I just let run the show and it just, it, it, it was bad. Right. And one thing I learned out of there, I always thought that, you know, treating people equally meant treating people the same. 
that, you know, if it was a woman, a man, whatever, if I treated them exactly the same, it was almost like a math equation that treating them equally was everything. And then it was made very clear to me in, in that learning process that treating people equally, equally does not mean treating them the same, that that's a mistake because everybody has a different background. Everybody has a different history and treating people equally means treating everybody with equal amounts of respect. And if those of us on this call are able to really make people understand that and really live by our own actions, then we can have positive outcomes. If not, you know, the only good news is younger generations really don't, I don't want, not seeing color isn't the right way to see it, but treat people with equal amounts of respect, regardless of what they look like. And so, you know, if we don't do these types of things and it doesn't become widespread, you know, what the white community does, again, that still never feels right to say, I'm sure it doesn't feel right to hear, then it's not going to be our generation that initiates the change or is part of the change or sees the change and hopefully be our kids. Thank you. Andy Gottesman, are you there? Hi, Mark. Thanks for taking the time. I'm from northern New Jersey. Um, also, great use of the word Ajda. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. So my question has to do with, as you say, getting people to get out there, particularly to run for office. And it seems so hard to get normal people to put themselves through what it would take to get into office. It's, it's horrible for them. It's horrible for their families. It can be horrible for their businesses. I know you've given it some thought. How do you think you get more people to cross that line and put themselves out there in that way? You change ballot access laws. You know, I'm, I fund an organization called the Center for Competitive Democracy.org. And all we do is sue states to reduce the inhibitors to getting on a ballot. Because right now, the, the two main parties do everything possible to keep small parties off the ballot and certainly individuals off the ballot. And so, you know, where you have the ability within your state to stand up to the Republicans and Democrats, that's going to be the first step because that, you know, because right now in order to get any type of support and, and really have a legitimate chance in, in most elections of, of at any level, you have to be a Republican or Democrat. And I don't think it's so much the, the pain threshold for families and businesses as it is the accessibility of being able to run because that's where we'll get better candidates and hopefully voters when they recognize a better candidate will allow them to will vote for them. And I think that then diminishes some of, of the issues you addressed. Great. Uh, Maxine Clark, if Maxine's on. Yes, thank you. I have two questions. Thank you. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and I agree with you on what your, your comment. I, I have a comment on the leadership part that, um, I agree that we all have to step up and be more leaders, but we're not all going to agree and we're not going to all lead in the same way. We're not going to all come to the same conclusions, which makes for more you know, chaos and direction. And one company's direction isn't the direction of another company or one community's direction isn't the same as another community. How are we going to get to some kind of consensus if we're all out there leading, leading more than we normally would, but not leading the same and not coming up with a, uh, a consensus, uh, which is why we need no labels, but coming up with a general consensus between now and the next election, for sure. I don't and think the other question is, what are you doing differently as a white man? Because you, you're a pretty, as you said, woke person. 
What are you doing differently um, now that these last few days have transpired? First, I hate the word woke, so we'll put that aside, but even though I used I it. I heard you say yeah. The, the, the first question, um, I don't think we need consensus because I don't think that's what people are really looking for. I think we've gotten to the point where people accept that, you know, not only are we partisan, but we're dug in. I think we need candor, we need honesty, we need authenticity, and we need communications. You know, I, I get emails because my email is public. I get so many emails and they start off with, I don't typically agree with your politics, but I think you listen. And I think that's the, the starting point. And that's why I mentioned earlier, listening to my employees and letting them speak out and letting them stand up, you know, because that kind of gives you tentacles into the community. And, you know, once people trust that a leader will listen, I, I don't think it become, comes down to consensus, but I think it comes down to, okay, maybe I can trust some of our, some of the people who are in charge, if you will, some of our politicians more, or our business leaders in this case. Because if, if there's no trust, then we're just going to see increased partisanship. Um, so I, I don't think consensus is possible, but I do think authenticity, honesty, and listening really would take us so much further than we are. In terms of what I'm doing, um, you know, yesterday there was um, a prayer rally, and I'm not religious at all, you know, and I'm Jewish, and it was a bunch of pastors and even though I was a little bit uncomfortable because they weren't listening to the social distancing aspect of it, had my mask on and I went down there with some of our players and just stood there and listened. Didn't say a word, you know, and just smiled and just let people know I was there. The day before, um, I'd seen a post on social media for one of the only black owned businesses in part of uh, Dallas called the West End. It was a burger joint and they had had that suffered from the violence. They they had had. Um, what I thought was a lot more damage, but turned out to be some broken windows. And I went down there thinking I was going to, you know, buy, buy some burgers and get it to go. And I'm a vegetarian. So they had a veggie burger on the, on the menu and I was going to leave a big tip and, and feel good about myself. And as it turned out, you know, there was a line that was three hours long and all I did was stand there, you know, just talking to people and smiling and, you know, taking some pictures and letting the people know that, you know, the Dallas Mavericks, the Mark Cuban Foundation, you know, Mark Cuban companies, you know, I'm, I'm just there. I'm just part of this community. I didn't ask to cut to the front of the line. I didn't give a speech. I was just there, you know, and I think that went a long way. And as it turned out, for the first two hours, I was the only white face there, you know, and that wasn't intentional. But I, again, you know, when people see you, when, when they hear you, or, you know, or more importantly, when you hear them, and don't immediately try to come to a solution, I think, you know, that matters. And a lot of it, as I said a little earlier, you know, I was really upset, you know, and physically impacted listening to some of, of the African-American men that work for me tell their stories. And it made me really appreciate, you know, that I needed to be there more. And, you know, after that, you know, the mayor asked me to post something on social media, the chief of police asked me to post something on social media, and I didn't do it. Um, and they asked Dirk Nowitzki, one of our former players, Hall of Famer, they asked him to, to do it as well. And he asked me, and I said, no, we don't have that standing. We have to know that we're here to show support, but that support doesn't mean we have to say anything. We just have to be there. And you know, because of the financial circumstances where we have ourselves personally, and we can support, as, as things change, where we can, we can help build, you know, smaller, particularly minority owned businesses, 
then we'll do that. And I'm not saying we'll limit it only to minority-owned businesses. We're going to try to help the community as a whole. But for me, it was was just more about listening over the past couple of days. Now, prior to that, you know, just with the, the pandemic, you know, I really just tried to help small businesses as much as I could. You know, I, I spent time, reached out to the Small Business Administration, spent time talking to them, um, got to know how PPP and EIDL works and the banking side of it, um, and went online and volunteered to help people. Connected with a couple community banks because it was hard for small businesses to um, really be supported by large banks. You know, the, the biggest banks have hundreds of thousands of, of PPP um, loans that they were trying to administer. And that just left a lot of smaller businesses out in the cold or they didn't have the expertise um, or the knowledge. And honestly, it surprised me they didn't do what it took to gain the knowledge in some respects. But I just said, you know what? I'm going to find a couple local community banks that are more than willing to work with you. And that's what I did. I found a bank in Oklahoma. I found a bank in California. I found a bank in Dallas. And actually, they found me. Um, and I just said, hey, if I, if I can sh- connect you with, with small businesses that I know are PPP eligible, but just don't know how to go through the process, would you help them? And they said yes. Because, you know, the crazy part about the PPP loans is it was the first time in the history of the world where a bank got to say to a potential new customer, I want to give you money. And if you keep all your employees and only use 25% on overhead and the rest on payroll, you don't have to pay it back. And I really thought there would be just a huge run of banks trying to help. And that just wasn't the case. So these few um, community banks and some other fintech companies really stepped up, but going out there and trying to help. And it meant spending, you know, two, three hours, you know, for three or four nights getting to know this and making myself available and helping. Um, but but that's what I did. And again, I just wanted to be authentic and help where I had expertise. Larry Hirschfeld from San Diego. Larry. Yeah. Um, I was, I might've missed in the beginning. I was a little bit late and, and looking at some of the questions, this may not be what we want to talk about, but I was actually going to ask about what you think is going to happen to the NBA and, and sports and how this is affecting sure. sports? And, yeah, you know. th- those are fair questions. You know, um, first and foremost, like all of you, safety, you know, safety for our employees, our essential personnel. Um, it all falls apart if we can't keep our folks safe. And so, you know, the good news is every single day we seem to learn a little bit more. The good news is there seems to be more availability of testing and the testing isn't of great quality yet, but it, they seem to be getting better because the NBA, as you know, for obvious reasons, we can't be in a position where we're precluding tests from being available to anybody. You know, if the perception is that we we took tests away from people who needed them, our brand gets toasted. And so that's first and foremost. And we think over the next today, June first, next thirty days, we'll be able to bridge that. And over the next thirty days, hopefully, we'll get smarter about testing. Um, hopefully we'll get smarter about, you know, doing, I call it the Hotel California approach. We'll go into probably Orlando where, because Disney's our partner, you can check in, but you can never leave and, until you're eliminated from the playoffs. Um, but I really think that we'll start up and um, start playing games by the end of July and go through our normal playoffs. Um, we may have play-ins, that's all yet to be decided, and then start later next year, hopefully Christmas Day. Oh, Gary, Gary Levine, if you're there. 
Okay, I'm here. I, I didn't know you would actually call on me. <laughs> I, I am super um, brokenhearted about what's going on. And I'm a small business leader. And, um, and I don't know what to do to make a difference right now. And I feel both helpless and I feel hopeful at the same time. So any advice you can give me about what a normal, regular guy like me could do? What, um, what, business, are you in, what business are you in, Gary? I'm in the insurance business. Uh, what type of insurance? We do commercial insurance. I, I sold my agency to a very large company um, seven years ago. Um, so any property and casualty or? We do all property and casualty. Okay, that's what I would do. I would, I would go out there to, where do you live? What city? San Diego. Okay. I, I don't know what the impact was in San Diego, if there was any looting or anything like that. But Big time. Uh, so then what I would do is I would go online to wherever you can find San Diego, where I, I would just walk down to a business um, that you know is individually owned, that, that really suffered and say, hey, I'm in the insurance business. How can I help you? And maybe they don't have insurance and you can or can't help. But if they do, understanding contracts like you do, understanding what it takes to get reimbursement like you do, understanding which companies in the industry are best suited for this and which companies you know are going to be a problem, that's incredibly valuable to everybody, particularly small entrepreneurs that are suffering and have been looted. So you can add incredible value. And all you got to do is go be yourself. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Now, I, I just want to recognize Congressman Josh Gottheimer, the uh, co-chair of the caucus, really a, a leader of this effort. Josh, are you on? I'm here. Hi, Nancy. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I just thought it was thank, Oh, Thank you so much, Nancy. And Mark, thanks so much for uh, being here. And for your My work. pleasure, Congressman. I really appreciate it. Uh, great leadership. Thank you. My, thank you. Great. Uh, Michael Falcon, if he's from Tennessee. Unmute, figuring out the unmute. Um, <laughs> thanks. And thanks first, uh, fellow IU uh, alum. Go Hoosiers. In 84. I also yep. want to um, call out you and your fellow owners in the league, for the NBA. We lose track in the pandemic as the whole world was starting to really melt down for us in the U.S. in March. The NBA perversely led this um, by canceling these games. And I shudder to think that had that even gone on for another week or not happened, just how much worse um, this whole well, thing could have been. Thanks, Michael. It, it, tremendous. Um, I'm curious because you talked about a little bit about the boundaries of the team and where, where you show up and where you're vocal, but where you're silent. And I'm curious as to how you think about the boundaries somewhat related to the um, pandemic or some of the tangential effects we have about like whether masks are a political statement or not. Yeah. Um, but, but really in the context of, of what's going on with, with uh, this horrible situation um, with George Floyd, how, how you manage these boundaries between the culture and values of your organizations, your various businesses and what's inbounds versus the larger societal issues that, within our companies, it's maybe we can't solve or it may not even be appropriate. Um, yeah, that, it's hard, obviously. And it's, it's changed dramatically because on one hand, when we talked about safety first up until, you know, George Floyd's death and the protests and the looting, you know, 
and well, let me take a step back. On one hand, we, we, we're very much safety first and I can make an argument for masks and against masks, but what I've told my organization is whatever the legal requirements are, that's what we're going to do. We won't force you to wear a mask, but we're going to strongly encourage you to wear a mask if it's what the local authorities say. So that's part one. Then we saw as different states opened up and we saw particularly young, young kids just go out there and party, 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 right? And now we see the protests and we just see no social distancing. So that creates this conflict, right? Where on one hand, we're, we're, we're terrified, not just because of the riots and the protests, but what are the implications from a pandemic perspective? And there's complete uncertainty there because there's this lag time from you know, the incubation period to that person saying, okay, do I really have this or is it just, you know, I'm just sick, right? Then go into the hospital where you, be, you know, or getting tested where you become a statistic. Then potentially, you know, hopefully you recover. Hopefully, you know, there, there's not a bad consequence out of it. And so with this lag time, all I can do, as I said earlier, is be brutally honest with everybody and say, I'm concerned. You know, I'm, I don't know the best way to deal with this. And I'm not going to take sides. I'm not going to try to make a statement. You know, early on, particularly in Texas, when I would take a walk and there, you know, right when we opened up, you know, on a Friday afternoon, bars would be packed for happy hour. And I'm like, oh, my Lord, you know, this is probably going to go bad. But you don't really know until you know. And so I just try to communicate that and, and not take sides because, you know, the, the data, the results are going to be the results. If we get a resurgence and there's hot spots or there's not, I'd rather feel silly that I didn't take enough precautions than feel horrible and face the fact that maybe there were people who died because I didn't take the right precautions. So put me on the side of feeling silly every time and, and take and go into a, to an extreme. Now I realize from a business perspective, that's an even tougher balance, you know, because it's crushing. I mean, look, just look at the maps. I mean, it, we went from, you know, hitting on all cylinders to zero. And we don't know, you know, particularly on the, the fan side when that's coming back and we'll have to, you know, we're taking steps to, to try to be, um, you know, agile and to try to be creative and create new sources of revenue, like all companies are. But, you know, we're really just not taking sides, being agile and trying to be innovative because I do feel very strongly that how we do business will change, how people consume products and services will change. And this is a unique, unique um, period of time to really try to change the games that I'm in. You know, whether it's doing more business like this, work from home, innovative services that we couldn't offer before, whatever it may be. But I'm talking to our folks and saying, usually innovation comes from the top down. Me or, you know, one of one of my key folks, depending on the company, will come up with what we think is a brilliant idea, you know, maybe 10 percent of the time and actually turns out to be good. But now because people this is so different and we don't really have a lot of experience, our experience in business and innovation doesn't really help us. And so innovation is going to come from different places. And so what I've really tried to do is talk to our folks and say, I want all your ideas because all it takes is one to change the game. And that's what I'm looking to do. So a lot of uncertainty, 
a lot of communication, a lot of honesty, and a lot of bottom-up requests. Give me your ideas because all it takes is one good one. Great. Ken DeAngelis from Austin, Texas. Ken? Hey, Mark. Ken DeAngelis here. Hey, Ken. Uh, down in Austin. Uh, thanks for being with us. And, you know, you talked about uh, the change in society that's going to fall out of this uh, pandemic and that it, it depends largely on how white people react. I guess my question is, is how do you handicap whether this time will be different? So if you look back, we had, you know, some major change in the 60s with the civil rights and the great society. Since then, it's been, despite uh, inequality uh, of opportunity in healthcare and education, despite numerous uh, racial uh, incidents, not much has changed. Right. Uh, and I guess the question I have for you is, how, how do you handicap whether this time might be different? It's greater than zero, but not a whole lot more, <laughs> you know? And again, I think that's for the next couple of decades. And look, I'm just grasping at straws, right? We all are and trying to handicap anything. But when I, my, my oldest is 16, my kids are 10, 13, and 16. And the kids that I've invested in, like on Shark Tank um, or smaller companies I've invested in, they all have a social component. You know, when, when I look at their organizations, really the mix in terms of diversity is just natural. You know, they don't have to think about it like we tend to have to think about it for larger organizations. You know, are we diverse enough? Are we really, you know, leveraging the, the differences that that they that a diverse set of employees bring so that, you know, that helps our business and helps them. Smaller companies, particularly from, you know, Gen Z and millennials, don't really have that issue. So while I handicap it as low for the next 10, you know, maybe 20 years. But by the time my kids are in their late 20s and 30s, I think we'll have made major strides. At least I hope so, because they're just so much different. You know, I'm, I'm a kid of the 60s, too. I remember I was 10 years old in 1968. And I remember, you know, when Martin Luther King got shot, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just listening to kids on my block talk, you know, are, are the riots going to come here and, and being afraid? And like you said, not all that much has changed since then. Um, but I think kids today are much different. And I think social media really has a big part to play on that because you really, every, everybody is a brand. You know, you present your brand um, on Instagram, uh, kids don't really use Facebook, but on Twitter, on TikTok, you know, you are what you show on, on your social media. And that really gets kids to evolve to a place where they're, they're, they're much fairer than we are. They're, they're much more compassionate than, than we are. And I, that's a good thing. So I think our future is going to be really good. And plus just the demographics of the country, you know, there's going to be a lot more minorities and that's going to have a major impact as well. Thank you. Great. Is uh, Mark Lieberman on from New York, Mark? Yeah, thanks, Nancy. And uh, Mark, we've met through uh, my high school friend, your college friend, Carolyn Hinsey, who sends regards. Oh, yeah, yeah, Carolyn's great. I love Carolyn. Yeah, live wire. Um, so the question is, and it's really consistent with the, the No Labels platform here, is um, we're at a unique point in time and now the confluence of events between what happened in Minneapolis, the pandemic, and the fact that it's maybe the most important election in our lifetime. How do we engender civil discourse? 
we can really go one direction or another with what's happening. How do we yeah. make that happen? You know, it's tough. I mean, you know, when, when people ask me to run, it, it's funny. Most of the time, it's I can't vote for either candidate, you know, and what's happened the uh, you know, I don't want to name names, but, um, you know, just as Hillary Clinton was demonized, Joe Biden's getting demonized. And that that's been the biggest challenge. And, you know, everything that that's pinned on him, a lot of us could say to our president and say, those are, you know, the, how we describe you. But the reality is we have to deal with the fact that that Joe Biden and other candidates get demonized. And that's what we have to try to counteract. You know, it's that's not true. You know, what I tell people when they bring up Biden, I mean, I went on Sean Hannity and said the exact same thing. You know, oh, he's dimensioned this. That's just not true. You know, when I've sat and talked to both. And trust me, Joe Biden's a whole lot smarter than Donald Trump. But we have to get out there and communicate our experiences with with candidates that we support and really just try to to overcome that demonization and really call it out. You know, and in terms of scaling that, that's difficult, obviously. Um, hopefully Biden staff, and I've only talked to them briefly, will, you know, take on the same digital approach that, that Trump's has to really go out there. And I, I think what's happened with Trump, what Brad Parscale did right and is continuing to do is that he's effectively identified every single individual over the age of 16 in, the, in this country through the use of databases, not just social media, but databases. And he effectively comes up with a plan for each and every one of those individuals and how to reach them. And then he works backwards on what's the most cost-effective way to reach them, depending on what he knows about them. I don't know if the Democrats or anybody is taking that depth of approach or that scale of approach, but on a macro basis, that's what needs to be done. Andrew Brickman from Chicago. Andrew, are you on? I am. Um, Mark, thanks for your time today. Um, I want to go back delicately to your question you said, uh, or the question you posed earlier, that you're talking to primarily a white audience. Um, I spent some time in New York, and I've spent some time in Chicago, and I've had the benefit of getting involved in um, uh, projects in Harlem and uh, Lower North Center, which is in the Cabrini-Green area of Chicago. And one of the things I always felt like is coming in there, you're trying to help, but, um, you know, those are primarily African-American neighborhoods, and they're looking at you as, um, for lack of a better term, whitey. Right. And why do I want to take orders from whitey? Um, I had a recent event where I got involved in a school on the south side where quite the opposite, a lot of black leaders or African-American leaders had gotten involved in the school, and they had been very careful about picking the leaders. I mean, they were successful business people who had succeeded as lawyers and, 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 and uh, accountants and doctors. And those were the role models. And it was interesting to see the momentum gather in that organization just because they weren't looking at, again, using my term, I apologize, Whitey, giving them direction or taking orders. They were looking at a leader. And you highlight Martin Luther King. I mean, one of the great things about Martin Luther King is he brought his group along and it, it, you know he was the leader so my question is how do we empower train and and you know we I'm focusing on African Americans but we need to do this in all communities I mean we need to do it in the um, Hispanic community we need to do it but we, we need to we need to develop a mechanism 
um, you know, to create, uh, you know, strong leadership. Now, it's easy to say that when we can't do it in our own government, but um, um, so it's a little hypocritical, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, look, when I talk about communicating with white people, it's not necessarily about role models, right? It's, it's about systemic racism. You know, we're, we're the racists, right? They're not, right? We're, we're the ones who have to change, not them. And so I think there are role models, but there are difficult financial circumstances. And, and so it's not necessarily about role models. I think there's plenty of role models in all the minority communities, but it's really about opportunity. You know, look at investments. Um, I try to invest in as many minority companies as I can, as many minority funds as I can, because, well, I, I'll take a step back. You know, the Mavs went through a, a sexual harassment scandal two and a half years ago. It was it was brutal. It tore me apart. I had a CEO, African-American CEO, who harassed women. There were things that I did wrong, very wrong. And it, it really made me realize that, you know, I needed, I, I didn't have the right perspective, right? Again, I always thought you just treating people the same and treating people the same was the same as treating people equally. And we just some of the stupid mistakes that would happen with the Mavs, you know, I would have someone who looks like me trying to sell to Latina households, women, right, try to get them interested in buying tickets to the Mavs because we want to increase that 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 audience. The same with the Indian community. Dallas has the sixth largest Indian community in the country. People who look like me were selling because, hey, you're just selling and everybody's the same. But in reality, what we've done since is we've gone to people in those communities and we've enabled them. We've invested in them because they know the people around them. They're better at selling to their peers than we are. They know what gets them excited. And so the answer to your question is, you know, it's not about building better schools. That helps. I'm not saying don't do that, but it's about investing in people who are from those communities who know those communities and really know those, their leverage points. I mean, I've, I've invested in a, a fund, um, Backstage Capital. All they do is invest in women of color. Um, I've invested in other funds, other businesses, the same type of thing, because I, you know, I can guess all I want, but they're going to be that much closer to it. And that's really what I recommend, investing in funds or investing in businesses that are in those communities, because once they succeed, and look, like any VC um, venture, you're going to fail in most of them. But once they succeed, the communities succeed. And I think it's not so much role models, but it's building from the bottom, bottom up, helping th those businesses grow because that makes the community stronger, sets examples, creates jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Howard Sherman, are you on? Howard? Mark, thanks so much. Um, going back to your question, your issue about getting candidates across the Rubicon from the private sector, in 18, I ran for the U.S. Senate here in Mississippi as a private sector guy trying to bring some business acumen to the largest enterprise in the world, and I bumped up against Citizens United. Now, there are people on this call who are big proponents of it, thinking with money allows you to get voice, anybody can have a voice. I found myself running against the Chemical Industries Foundation. When I got into a runoff, I had every single thing in the state thrown against me because... I'm a private sector guy with no, no accountability to anybody except for my constituency and all the vested interests 
a line to get rid of me. And then the guy who beat me lost by 20 points. It didn't matter because the Citizens United proponents kept me right. out. So how do you, what do you do? Where do you fall on that? I mean, I'm not a fan of Citizens United. I'm a bigger proponent of, you know, the marketplace of ideas and solutions should speak for themselves. Um, and again, if you can communicate to people and go out there and help them understand what you're trying to accomplish, if enough of them agree, you get elected. And if enough don't, you don't. You know, it's in this day and age, it's really easy to influence people. And that's why I'm not a fan. I get the fact that, you know, it's First Amendment and, you know, businesses are people too. But I just, it, the, the reality of life is we all are influenced in one manner and the other. And it just gets too easy and too distracting even um, when it's just about buying access. And so I'm, I'm not a fan, um, even though I understand both sides of it. I'd rather, you know, because we have social media, um, it's actually easy to get out ideas um, and discuss them. But when you're overwhelmed with with ads and dollars and posts and everything, then it, it no longer becomes a discussion. It just becomes influence. So I'm not a fan of Citizens United. Right. Uh, Gene Bernstein, are you on? Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Mark, you're, you're used to being in the limelight for better or for worse. And um, I'm curious what your advice would be to people who think about running but don't want to expose their family and, and all the other garbage that goes with it yeah. uh, on top of the kind of problems of the, of the Citizen United that we've just spoken of. Yeah, I mean, you know, I literally would have run for president if my family said yes. I got voted down four to one. <laughs> I was alone, yes. Um, and for just those reasons, you know, I'm 61 and I went to Indiana and we had fun. I played rugby. There's so much of me doing the craziest things ever. And my wife knows it <laughs> and my kids don't yet. And, and so, you know, it's just it, it's it's hard and it's not something that my family, you know, I wanted to put them through. Um, hopefully through no labels, we can start to change that and you guys can start you know, playing the game a little differently, but, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate. And again, I'll go back to what I said earlier in terms of making it easier to get on the ballot, because when you just have one opponent, obviously there's, there's a logic to just trying to find everything you can and do oppo research on that one opponent. When you have five or 10 different opponents, it's more like a primary. You don't see that type of, of hate you know, maybe with front runners you do, um, but you don't see as much of it. And so having more candidates, I think, would dramatically diminish that problem. You know, and I'm also a fan of rank choice for that very reason. Um, you know, so if you can rank your, your option, then that opens the door for candidates that aren't part of the two main parties. You know, because the underpinning, if, if I had the choice, I would get rid of parties altogether. You know, I think do, they've served their purpose. Do you think this new Twitter thing with Trump and fact checking will help? No, 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 because people just fight back. Look, Twitter isn't real world. 20% of the adult US population is on Twitter. You know, it's like a press release um, mill in some respects, but people just go on there and, and, you know, hide behind their, their dog pictures or their flag pictures or their, you know, I love Trump or I love whoever. Um, and 
are just as mean. So I, I, don't, I don't think anything changes there. But when we get to more good candidates in a race, then it's hard to find something on four or five different people. Paul Murad from Nevada. Paul. Hi there, Mark. Uh, hey, Paul. Uh, I'm based in Las Vegas. Uh, I did run for office 10 years ago as a small business, uh, you know, private uh, guy. And it was an interesting experience, but it's nothing that I want to repeat anytime soon. <laughs> It was 10 years ago and uh, just after seeing, after experiencing it and also after seeing who else runs and just uh, it, it's not something I want to participate in. So I definitely can uh, understand what's happening uh, nationwide. But my question is on the small business side of things. Uh, you, you, I appreciate your interest and support of that topic and, and small businesses. But while they're currently dealing with COVID and the protests, the bigger issue is that a lot of the small businesses dealing with bureaucracy at the city levels where they operate in it's very expensive yep. you know, the cities like to pick on certain license types you know if it's a or you know or they make it difficult in the process um you know some licenses they like to charge extras if you're opening a bar tavern yep. restaurant you know 100 than a restaurant yeah. if you want to open a dispensary they'll charge you you know a lot of money or won't even give you a license unless you're part of a you know, very special group so uh the the big issue is the city bureaucracy and the city rules and the way the local cities create obstacles in the businesses in general, and now especially for recovery. Have you talked about that, yep. addressed that, or dealt with any groups or organizations that are taking that issue on, especially? Um, organizations, no, but <laughs> I was never a big Hillary Trump, Hillary Clinton fan, but I was less of a Donald Trump fan. And so, and literally in 2016 was the first time I'd ever gotten involved in politics at all. And part of my deal with the Clinton campaign and Gene Sperling was head of the her economic community, I think, um, um, task force. And I said, the only way I would do it is if if you raise taxes, which I was against, or you kept them the same, you had to use some of that money to buy down the licensing and startup charges that occurred in each individual city and, and to a lesser extent, and even states as well. Because you're right, there's too much friction there to start a business. You know, there's ridiculous licensing fees. I think state of Louisiana, um, you have to have 220 hours as an apprentice washing hair before you can be an approved hair washer in a salon. I mean, they're just ridiculous things like that. And, you know, they, they, they see small businesses as a money grab, right? Or you're starting up, you must have money. But it, it's really a, a challenge. And, you know, with the former mayor here in Dallas, and I'll take this up with the new mayor at the appropriate time, you know, it should be just one button, right? One button, you've got all the things you need to incorporate a business in the city of Dallas, the county of Dallas, and in the, in the state of Texas, and any licensing fees, if necessary and legitimate, you should be able to PayPal them, Google Pay, Apple Pay, whatever it may be, um, and with a credit card so that you know that it's going to cost you a total of $99, you get started up, you hit the button, and you go to work. The friction there is way too tough for a lot of small, particularly minority businesses to navigate. So I agree with you 100%. And yes, that, that's something certainly on the list. Thank you. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be helpful if the business leaders take that on because I was on the phone with a councilman trying to share my ideas. And he said, well, two months is not a bad time to wait for a construction permit. He says, you know, sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's more, sometimes it's less, but you know, what's the problem with that? We yeah, never especially now, you know, that brings up a bigger um, topic, you know, in, in previous, you know, four five months ago, you know, in this type of conversation, I talk about AI and robotics because AI is certainly having a huge impact on business, but it should also have a huge impact on, on government. You know, we should, 
you know, I've, I've historically been a small government guy. Now, these are certainly different times. And I think you unique times like this call for unique pragmatic solutions. But I think if we can start investing in AI and robotics, that we can start implementing government as a service so that we don't have the traditional paper pushers running our governments at any level from federal on down so that we can start implementing um, AI. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be challenges as you try to automate some services from the technical side of it, the bias side of it, to the union sides of it. But eventually we can get there and that can streamline government so we can actually have more impact and get more results without it being the traditional paper pushing bureaucracy. And it's the same with robotics. You know, right now, one of the big topics is China. You know, how do we compete with China? Well, China is kicking our ass. You know, they're trying, they're catching up in AI, but we're be in robotics, we're behind China, G Germany, and Japan. And if you think about going forward, if we ever want to bring manufacturing back to this country, particularly if we, you know, we're gonna let's just say there's a billion products that are made overseas. And we want to do what it takes to bring back 500 million of them. Well, the only way we're going to kick China's ass in manufacturing is through robotics, because we do have better technical expertise here in this country. And by using that technical expertise and investing federally in research for robotics, then we can undercut low price um, countries that have low price laborers and, and fewer you know, um, restrictions um, for on the um, ecosystem and, and conservation, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so we need to start investing in those things, just like, you know, our infrastructure 1.0 was roads and airports to connect cities and, and states and countries. Now, if we're going to compete and see that leverage and enhancement in our ability to manufacture and compete with China and Russia, and as I said, Germany and Japan, we need to start making infrastructure 2.0 and investment in robotics and AI. Otherwise, you know, when, when I compete in any of my businesses, I always try to put the hat of my competitor on. What are they doing to try to kick my ass? Well, if I'm China and I'm trying to kick America's ass, yes, I'm putting people and infiltrating people into these protests and trying to make them violent. But bigger picture, I'm, I'm investing every bit I can in AI and robotics because that's how I'm going to overcome my largest competitor. And if we don't do that and they continue to, we're going to have real problems competing globally. Ted Koenig, I think this is our last question before we, we do our wind down, Ted. You're on. Yep. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Hey, good. How are you? Good, good. I can attest to Mark's entrepreneurialism and his capitalism because I went to school with him. Oh, you did? Oh, that's how I know you. I knew I knew the name. I was like, wait, <laughs> good to hear from you, Ted. And, so, and my partying ability, too. <laughs> yeah, I can attest to why he can't run for president. Um, Mark, question for you. The, um, the concern I've got is, is, is a little different. We've known that most of us have been lucky enough through education to be able to um, you know, change our, our, our lives and our children's lives. The income equality issues and the lack of education is really, I think, one of our greatest issues here in terms of permeates voting, jobs, everything. I mean, as an entrepreneur, as a capitalist, how would you suggest we tackle that as a, uh, as a government? And um, how do we deal with that so that we can take some of the minorities and bring them out of 
you know, right. poverty and, and, and into an educational relationship where they can vote and they can, you know, take control of their lives. Couple I different, yeah, a couple of different things. And I agree with you. Income inequality is just a huge problem. So a couple of different things. Obviously, education is important, you know, getting, you know, teaching kids at preschool levels, right? Then at kindergarten and grade school and making sure schools are legitimate and investing in teachers and investing in communities so that, you know, and even if it means providing jobs, because if mom and or dad can't, doesn't have a job and, you know, then it all falls apart from there and they can't, you know, if they don't have enough of a job, they, they can't, um, kids don't go to school. So that, that's part one. So I agree with you that education is critical um, in lifting people up. Part two is the reality is that if you're getting paid by the hour or even a, a basic salary, you're always going to be falling behind in terms of income equality because what segregates, you know, those at the top from those at the bottom are appreciable assets. So on one hand, you want to get people into home ownership and create more home ownership opportunities, but legitimate ones, not subprime and some of the games that were played, you know, in the past. But on, on the other hand, you know, how else can we get people to have appreciable assets? And one of the things that I've always tried to do with any company that I've started is I gave everybody stock, you know. And so when I've sold, comp sold companies, everybody had equity and everybody got paid. And so I've really pushed hard, you know, wherever I could. You know, and I, I recommend it to each and every one of you that have your own companies, give people stock, you know, options, warrants, you know, restricted stock, right on stock, whatever it may be, because that's how people have appreciable assets. And that's how they get, you know, their net worth increased. And then as a country, so the, the wildest idea that I heard that I actually thought was interesting, I don't know if it's ever conceivably, but ever conceivably be done. But one of the hard lessons that we learned um, during the pandemic when we tried to um, provide money to people through the stimulus program is if you didn't have direct deposit, a direct deposit account, you had to wait for your check. And, if, you know, and that's on a federal level. And it's also a problem with unemployment insurance as well. There's still people in, in, in certain states that haven't gotten their unemployment checks after getting approved for unemployment. I think one requirement when you get a social security card you have to set up a digital account somewhere that is connected to the IRS. I know that's scary in some respects, but it, that means that if we have a resurgence or we have to, we go through something like this again in five, 10, 20 years, there's an immediate way to deposit money into people's accounts. That's critical because getting money into hands, as we saw here, is the only thing that, that kept people alive, kept people going, kept food on the table. And so we have to be better at that in the future. So I think A, having a digital account and B, you know, if, if we do any type of bailouts at all, I want us to negotiate for taxpayers better. You know, I want us to be more like Warren Buffett when he bailed out Wells Fargo and invested five, $5 billion and got options and warrants and, um, and preferred stock and ended up selling it for 17 million. That's part one, but part two of that is we should also have accounts so that everybody should get their share of that rather than it going to the treasury. And that's the wild idea that I actually like that, I, that someone discussed with me. So not only should we all have a digital account, um, digital bank account, but we also should have an account that, could, let's just say we bailed out Boeing as an example. And out of Boeing, we got 330 million shares of stock. Doesn't matter if they were worth a, a dollar, uh, you know, $10, whatever. But we got 330 million shares of stock. I prefer now to see any bailout like that 
where one share per person, 330 million people, 330 million shares, everybody got their one share and it got put into that account and they can't sell it for 10 years. That way people, you know, their tax money goes to appreciable assets where when, when we're in difficult times. And again, that gives you an appreciable asset to increase your net worth. Crazy idea, chances of it happening are slim and none, but it literally is one of the best ideas I've heard. And then uh, before we turn it back, Bill Galston, one of my co-founders here. Bill, are you on the line? I certainly am. Uh, and on behalf of No Labels, I want to thank you, Mark Cuban, for uh, uh, so generously sharing your time with us and your perspectives. You mentioned Martin Luther King. Uh, and King once said uh, that everyone can be great because everyone can serve. And what really struck me about what you said was your conception of leadership as service, your emphasis on the fact that we all know something. We all have assets, tangible or intangible, that we can place in the service of others. You also challenged us as people uh, of privilege, mostly white, uh, to take a leadership position in solving the kinds of problems involving people who aren't like us. You challenged us to raise our game. Absolutely right. And you know what? No Labels is trying to raise its game too in these very important times. And in order for us to raise our game, we rely on the people on this call and others like you to help us do that. That's why we're forming uh, coalitions in cities across the country. Uh, we need your help, not to build us as an organization so much as to enable us to act more effectively to address the public problems that are just crying out for leadership that we aren't getting. So once again, Mark, thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. And if we can just have you do our closing words for today, we just really appreciate you spending the time with us. We thank you. Um, I guess my closing words are thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate the questions were great, um, challenging. And I'll, I'll leave you with, with one little statement. None of us can be heroes unless all of us are heroes. And that's what it's going to take for us to get through this. So thank you, everybody. Mark Cuban says that right now, we find ourselves in the midst of two pandemics, a viral one and a social one. At a moment like this, people who lead businesses need one thing above all from government leaders, certainty. However, Cuban says that is nowhere to be found. So he says he feels a responsibility to take on a broader leadership role, not just across his businesses, but across society. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.